Um, the scripture reading is Exodus 2, 1 through 10. Now, a man from the house of Levi went and took as his wife a Levite woman. The woman conceived and bore a son. And when she saw that he was a fine child, he, she hid him for three months. When she could hide him no longer, she took for him a basket made of bulrushes and daubed it with bitumen and pitch. She put the child in it and placed it among the reeds by the riverbank. And his sister stood at a distance to know what would be done to him. Now the daughter of Pharaoh came down to bathe at the river while her young woman walked beside the river. She saw the basket among the reeds and sent her servant woman, and she took it. When she opened it, she saw the child, and behold, the baby was crying. She took pity on him and said, This is one of the Hebrews' children. Then his sister said to Pharaoh's daughter, Shall I go and call you a nurse from the Hebrew woman to nurse the child for you? And Pharaoh's daughter said to her, Go. So the girl went and called the child's mother. And Pharaoh's daughter said to her, Take this child away and nurse him for me, and I will give you your wages. So the woman took the child and nursed him. When the child grew up, she brought him to Pharaoh's daughter, and he became her son. She named him Moses because, she said, I drew him out of the water. This is the word of the Lord. Well, good morning. If you are joining us for the first time, whether in person or online, uh, you'll say, I thought you were going through the Gospel of Luke, and we are. <laughs> We've decided to take a little break from Luke. We will resume this fall. We thought it would be good this summer to walk through an Old Testament text, and that's through the book of Exodus, looking at the life of Moses. So if you would, turn to Exodus chapter 2. Why Moses? Why are, we, why are we taking a little bit of a, a break? Well, if I gave my child only Brussels sprouts for every meal, it wouldn't be a very balanced diet. So we wanted to bring in some Old Testament, and we thought, uh, Pastor Michael and I were talking, we thought, you know, Moses is such an appropriate character for the time frame in which we live in. Moses certainly, uh, he's mentioned what, almost 800 times in Scripture, 700 in the Old Testament, uh, 80 times in the New Testament approximately, he plays a key role. He's depicted as a, a leader, a poet, uh, a, a lawgiver, a mediator. And you say, well, yes, that's great. You know, he's the founder of the Israel's law. He, he, he created an institution. He, he, he led them to the promised land. That's great. But how does that relate? Why is Moses such a, a, a particular relevant to me in this day and age? I mean, I'm not probably going to lead a group through the Red Sea, <laughs> right? I've not been called to lead a group of refugees. So how does this relate? Well, despite all the greatness of Moses, he still struggled, didn't he? There were moments of fear, there were moments of doubt, and unfortunately, even times of great sin. However, the Lord worked in and through him. And what I see when I look at the life of Moses is that God keeps his plan. He is still in charge. 
in a world full of chaos, which several of you have expressed saying, ah, we, we seem to be in a free fall as a country and as a people. What do we do? Moses speaks loud and clear. God is on the throne. So let's go to prayer and then we'll look at the text. Father, we come to your word and we are so grateful for the whole counsel of God. The gospel of Luke, we've, we're moving through and relishing that. And now we take a, a brief break to look at the life of Moses. And we see again that you, your plan is right on track. And that you can use people like Moses, who certainly were not perfect. They might have been good looking, according to the text. But Moses had his fault. He had his weaknesses. And though he lived so many years before us, there's still much that is relevant for us even here today. Lord, we thank you. We praise you. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, chapter 2 is where we are in Exodus. And we have chapter 2, verse 1. It says, A man from the household of Levi married a woman who was a descendant of Levi. The woman became pregnant and gave birth to a son. I mean, this is a hallmark moment. It's lovely, right? You've got this, this couple, and they're, they're gonna, they're, she's pregnant. But when you understand the backdrop, it makes far more sense there is something looming in the air. In fact, the news that she's pregnant is also devastating. Let me show you. Go back to chapter 1. Let's look at this. Let's paint the scene. In 1.8, it says, A new king, a new pharaoh, who did not know Joseph. You remember that story. God raised up Joseph to the point he's second in command over all of Egypt. And God gave favor to the Israelites via Joseph with the Egyptians, and they prospered. They had some of the most productive land in all of Egypt, the, the lower Egypt, the Goshen area. And it said that Joseph comes to power, or this king comes to power over Egypt. He said to his people, look at the Israelite people, more numerous and stronger than we are. Come, let's deal wisely with them. Otherwise, they will continue to multiply. And if war breaks out, they will form an ally against us. And they will fight us. And they could also leave our land, which would be devastating. And so the text goes on. Here is how Pharaoh decides to put his thumb down upon the Israelites. He says in verse 12, But the more the Egyptians oppressed them, the more they multiplied. And as a result, the Egyptians loathed, despised, hated the Israelites. And they made the Israelites serve rigorously. So they made, it says, they made them lives bitter by hard service with mortar and bricks and all kinds of service in the fields. But that, that didn't cut it. It says in verse 18, Pharaoh of the Egyptians said to the Hebrew midwives, we have two of them here mentioned, Shipra and Pua. And it says, when you assist the Hebrew women in childbirth, observe the delivery. If it's a son, abort. Get rid of them. So the Pharaoh looks at this group of people, this minority group that's multiplying and creating real havoc, and he says, listen, we're going to press them, number one, and if that doesn't do it, now I want you to kill every boy that's going to be born. And so here you meet this young couple in chapter 2, and she has been told she's pregnant, giving birth to a son. They know full well what is going to transpire. They know that this boy is going to be killed by edict of the Pharaoh. 
So let's look at this text. We see here in chapter 1 of 2, there's nothing unique with Moses' birth. There's, there's no supernatural event. No angel appears. No lightning bolt that comes down. And we're just told this, this ordinary couple gives birth to a son. Notice it states they're from the tribe of Levi, both of them. That's extremely significant. To the Jews, the Levi tribe is the purest of the race of the Hebrews. Philo, the ancient philosopher from the first century, Jewish philosopher, says, Moses has a double link with truth in that the Levites is their loyalty to God alone. They did not show favoritism towards their own kin, but slew all those who had worshipped the golden calf. And so to mention that, he's, that both parents are from the tri tribe of Levi is very significant. He's got great pedigree. But do you notice there's something missing? The tribes mentioned, but the parents' names are absent. Interesting, isn't it? The text focus is on the child. In fact, child or son is mentioned 13 times in just these 10 verses. Our focus is on Moses. He's named. The parents aren't. Later we find out it's Amram and Jacobed, which means Yahweh is gracious or glorious. And so you have these two parents who who aren't even mentioned in the text because, again, our focus is on Moses. And notice in verse 2 what the mother does. She saw him, and the Net Bible has here he was a healthy child. And that's probably not the best rendering. The idea is that he is good. And we'll get to that in a minute. But she will hide him, it says, for three months. Just like Rahab hid the slaves, she will hide her child. And this leads us to a question, because here you have the Hebrew midwives, and you've got Jochebed hiding her son, and it's called civil disobedience, isn't it? Because what are they supposed to do? They're supposed to kill Moses when he is born. Civil disobedience is the illegal actions aimed at some sort of change in the existing code of laws. The question of when is civil disobedience allowed is a question that's becoming more and more of an issue for the evangelical church in this land, is it not? In light of the COVID restrictions on houses of worship to matters of sexual identity and even racial matters, where do we stand on the issues of civil disobedience? So let me take in a little excursus this morning. I may regret it later, but this is where the text, text t takes us, so we will address it. I mean, really the questions are, who decides what is clearly unconstitutional? Right? When have we come to the, our last resort? Whose conscience is to be trusted as a, the right in a matter? Who can decree that willingness to accept punishment justifies breaking the law? I mean, think about what you've heard individuals say and under the banner of civil disobedience. Well, it's, it's what is right. It's what it feels to me. Or, well, I know I will suffer, but this is part of the equation. Well, this topic of civil disobedience is not foreign to Scripture. It's certainly illustrated here in Exodus chapter 2, and it's a text that's often used by theologians. But our Lord clearly taught that we are citizens of two worlds, didn't he? Render to Caesar the things that are Caesar, and the things that are to the Lord, to the Lord. Which is what? 
the context, of course, is taxes, which is a real bummer come April 15th, uh, right? Uh, reminded of the text, render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's. But later, Paul in Romans 13 will talk about the government has been appointed by God. And remember who's sitting on the throne when Paul writes the church at Rome? Nero. He, he, he is he's not the most godly figure around. But Paul says that the government has been appointed by God and it is to be feared and it's to be honored. And Peter writes in 1 Peter, Submit yourselves for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether it be a king as the one in authority or to governors as sent by him for the punishment of evildoers and the praise of those who do right. So, then how do you explain the midwives who disobey Pharaoh's orders and say, no, we're not aborting these babies when they're born. We're not doing it. And the text tells us in chapter 1 that God honors that and further blesses them. Or how do you handle Moses' parents who are hiding Moses for three months? Can you imagine hiding an infant for three months? <laughs> Oops. Uh, all right. or, 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 or what about Daniel chapter 3? Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego who refused to bow down to the idol that Nebuchadnezzar had made of himself. And what's that, what are they done? They're thrown into the fiery furnace. Or, or Daniel 6 when King Darius says that you're not to pray to anyone but to him. And Daniel says, no way. I will pray to my God. And think about Acts chapter 4 and 5 when Peter and John were commanded not to preach the gospel and they said in their response to the religious rulers, we must obey God rather than men. In all of these examples and, uh, that we've just cited from Scripture, there's a couple common denominators. First, there was a direct specific conflict between God's law and man's law. Rather than an action based upon emotional experience or what we feel is right, the midwives and etc. are doing what God has commanded. I mean, think about it. What Pharaoh is commanding is murder. Abortion is murder. Nebuchadnezzar, he's calling for idolatry. And Darius is the same. Whenever we as believers feel ob obliged to disobey the government, we must be sure, listen to this, it is not because of an injustice to us, but because it's an injustice to God and his word. Amen. To catch that, it's not an injustice to ourselves, but it is to God. It is what is due to the Lord, not to us, when civil disobedience must occur. And that's the case with the midwives. It's the case with Moses' parents. Why did they do this? Because this little wee one has is, is been made in the image of God. And we, and we are not to murder. And so no, they cannot do this because God's law states it. And secondly, in choosing to obey God's higher law, believers need to be prepared to pay the penalty. <laughs> yes. Moses survives. The midwives are blessed. Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego survive the fiery furnace. But we know throughout biblical history, as well as modern history, at times when believers stand for what is right in the midst of civil disobedience, they will pay, and they could pay with their very lives. Right? When there's a clear contradiction between God and Caesar, we have to obey God. But in other cases, we are to render obedience to civil authority. If we do not, then we have a state of anarchy, which I believe we are quickly approaching. 
Christians must resist our culture's tendency to rebel at the first provocation, especially in light of the numerous scriptural admonitions to obey those in authority. Why? Because one, we all have a sin nature. (laughs) The bottom line is we'd love to rebel and we have to be careful. And and let's face it, this is a gray area. This is what the Christians in Germany in the 1930s debated. Do we assassinate Hitler or not? And some said, no, you cannot do that. He's been appointed by God. Dietrich Bonhoeffer and other believers said, absolutely. And they were directly involved with attempting to assassinate Hitler. And so we have to walk in grace, that is for sure. But we also must recognize, according to 2 Timothy 3, that lawlessness will prevail. It's where our world is headed. It shouldn't surprise us. Scripture is very clear. And those 18 characteristics of, of the end times, when people will be lover of self, etc., etc., go through that list. The lawlessness is peppered throughout all 18. It's very clear. As Christians, we need to be certain we're not contributing to the climate of lawlessness while at the same time standing for truth. Remember that the Christian's primary responsibility is what? The Great Commission. Godly living. And for these midwives and Moses' parents, it's, it's, the issue is life and how a human being has been created in the image of God. And so they will say to Pharaoh, no, we will disobey because God's law trumps your law. So hopefully this helps. This doesn't set us. We could, we could spend hours discussing civil disobedience in relationship to Scripture. But it's certainly seen here, isn't it, with Moses' parents. Well, look what Mama says about her child. She says, he is good looking. He's beautiful. I love the text. Stephen, in his defense before he's stoned, also states that Moses was very handsome. I mean, this is a Gerber baby gone bad. I mean, this is a a picture they would have used on the bottle for sure. Philo states that Moses was noble, handsome, graceful, and very charming. I think what, what the text is trying to say is when, when mama looked at her child, she said, the Lord's hand is upon this one. This was very unique. And she's already had two children. She's had Aaron and she's had Miriam. But she looks at Moses and she says, no, no, no. God's hand is on this child. And so for three months, the text tells us she attempts to conceal her son. Why? After three months, she decides that she needs to take the next step. Text doesn't tell us. I don't know if the lungs have developed enough that now when he cries, it's very loud. Uh, we just don't know. Some state there's a custom among the Jews that eventually the child is introduced to the family, etc. And so she's trying to prevent that next stage. Uh, regardless, she she's going to make some provisions. Notice it says when she no longer was able to hide in verse 3, she took a papyrus basket papyrus or reeds that grew. They were very common in Egypt. It's used for paper. And she said, and it says that she sealed it with, and the, the terms here are the same terms used of the mortar for the bricks in chapter 1. She's very careful. In fact, the term for basket is used of the ark in Genesis. One scholar states, and I think he's right, putting her son into the Nile was in one sense obeying the Lord's edict to throw baby boys into the Nile River. But another, Moses was saved from the waters, so he, like 
Noah, would deliver the Lord's people through the waters. It wasn't uncommon at this time frame in Egypt uh, to take a child that you did not want and put them in the Nile. Uh, it's kind of like leaving it on the doorstep of the church, <laughs> uh, is the idea. And, and this was the concept, and assuming, uh, the Egyptians assumed, you know, if, I hate to do this, but the gods will take care of our baby if we put it in the Nile. If not, well, you know, the Lord knew, the Lord's knew, I should say, the gods knew, uh, under an Egyptian concept. And so there is that element, but this isn't... Uh, notice the steps that the mother is taking. This isn't by chance. First of all, she, she's taking great care to make a basket that's not going to leak. Secondly, the term placed is mentioned twice. Notice she put the child in it and set it among the reeds. She has placed this. She didn't just put this in the water and let it run down to the Mediterranean and hope that a crocodile doesn't get it along the way. No, 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 no. It says she placed it in the reeds. It's very careful, it's strategic, and also notice what else, her sister, his sister, verse 4, is stationed at a distance. She's made all the provisions Jochebed has for her son. She says, Miriam, you're going to watch from a distance. And, and why placed here along the Nile? Because I think they know full well, this is where Pharaoh's entourage bathe. There's just by chance... God will protect and watch over the child. She's desperate. The, the commitment to the child and to God's hands, the, the resources are all about and exhausted. And so she seeks to make provision this way. Well, it says the daughter of Pharaoh, verse 5, came down to wash herself by the Nile. If this is indeed the time of Thutmose the, the first, or Thutmose the first, then this princess is Hatshepsut. And you say, well, who is she? She is the second pharaoh that is a female in Egyptian history. She is very significant. In fact, if you go to the Valley of the Kings and you, where the, all the mummies are buried and you go across the ridge, which I've walked, and you go to the other side, there's the mortuary to this pharaoh. She ruled for 20-some years. She never had a child. She has a stepson. She's married to Amos. Her father is Tutmos, and she will name the child Moses. I don't think it's a coincidence. Now, there are others who will argue, no, it's a different princess. But I, regardless, in the biblical text, the greatest work ever done by a member of the Egyptian royal family was a single act of kindness towards this abandoned baby. It's very significant. And if you look at Egyptian history, if it is this lady, she's extremely powerful. She will co-reign with her it's her stepson, but uh, she's in charge. <laughs> and, and notice the text states, it says in verse 6, they opened and saw the child, a boy crying. That's not a surprise, right? Uh, poor little one, it's all abandoned. But the text says she felt compassion. The opposite term is used in chapter 1 when the Egyptians, are, we are told, they loathe the Israelites. She might look like her daddy, Tutmos the first, but she's not going to do what daddy says. 
She has great compassion. She knows this is an Israelite baby. This is not to be mistaken as some Egyptian child that's been put into the waters in hopes that they survive. No, 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 no. And and it just so happens that this young girl comes up and says, Hey, I I know someone who can nurse the child for you. I mean, uh, this prince is not an idiot. She has to have drawn the connections here of who this person is. And notice it says she opens it, she sees the child, she has compassion, and she says this is one of the Hebrews' children. And if she was to obey daddy, she would drown the child right there on the spot or feed it to the crocodiles. But no, the sister, Miriam, who's just happened to be standing nearby, says to Pharaoh's daughter, shall I go and find a nursing mother? It's the mom. I mean, this story couldn't be any better to see how God is providing and caring for Moses and for the family. I mean, not only does he grant mama time with the baby, but notice what also the Pharaoh's daughter, the princess, does. She said, oh, great. She says, take this child and nurse him for me, and I will pay your wages. (laughs) Not only are you going to have the opportunity to spend time with your child, I'll pay you to do that. You, You don't have to work. Wouldn't you like to have had that as a mom, right? Uh, no payment's worth what I had to do, right? Yeah, that's the idea. But Pharaoh's, this princess is saying, I'll pay it. It's just like the Lord to care for his people, isn't it? Had Moses' parents not trusted the Lord, had they abandoned the son, aborted the son, tried to conceal it, and then they're all dead, we wouldn't have had an exodus. We would have had no leading to the promised land, no Mosaic law. Scott Haverman says, in the midst of an ever-changing world, the good news is that the life of or the yeah the life of faith is anchored by the power, provisions, and promises of God. Circumstances may change. We may not be under the edict to abort. But the future is as sure as the character of God himself. No matter what happens, those who trust in God hope in his word. Jochebed, Amram, they knew the promises that were given to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. They rehearsed those. They knew the stories of Joseph and how that his body was placed and that when you go back to the promised land, you're to take the body out in the land of Goshen to Canaan. They knew all these stories. They understood God's provision, his promises. Did they have some dark days? I'm sure they did. During that pregnancy for nine months, how do you conceal that? Oh, she's just not feeling well. And then how do you conceal this child? What do you do? The dilemma. I mean, by protecting this child, they put their own lives at risk. They put their oldest son at risk. They put their daughter at risk in trying to protect this little one. And yet, they understood the Lord will care for his people. And we're going to see this as we move through Exodus. God's hand of provision is seen time and time again. And that's why in verse 10 it says, When the child grew older, she brought him to Pharaoh's daughter, and he became her son. Now, not only did he have an incredible nursery, which paid for all the the blues of the room, now he's paid to study at the Ivy League of the day. The best schools in the land. 
because he's growing up in Pharaoh's court. He's cared for. Acts 7.22 says that Moses was educated in all the wisdom of the Egyptians. He gets the best education possible. God's hand of provision on this young man's life. And she says, in verse 10, the princess says, I'll call his name Moses. And I said, I, I think there's many connections here with Amos, Tutmos. Most means son or child. The first part of the name deals with the God. But here the text seems to indicate it means to be drawn out. Scholars will argue, no, that's a Hebrew term. It's not an Egyptian term. And there's a lot of confusion here. And you have to wonder if it's not intentionally vague. Because in one way, he's, Moses is an Egyptian, and another way, no, he's truly an Israelite, and he will lead his people. Not only did Pharaoh's daughter save this Jewish boy from the father's edict, she eventually raises the son in her father's estate. God's sense of humor. In the opening chapters of Exodus, we find God's plan overriding Pharaoh's plan. Now, what's Pharaoh's plan? Oppress, dwindle this group, get rid of them. And what is God doing? Oh no, he's raising a leader who's going to oppress you. <laughs> he's going to strip you of all, all that you have through the ten plagues. And he's going to lead his people back to the promised land through this very child that your daughter, O Pharaoh, found along the Nile. <laughs> That's the Lord. There's three principles here that are in your notes. I just want to highlight. The first is of, of these is that even in the darkest moments, when evil is rampant and the wicked appear to be triumphant, can you relate? Just listen to the news. God's plan will not be thwarted. Proverbs 21.1, the king's heart is a stream of water in the hand of the Lord. Isn't that great? He turns it, Proverbs states, wherever he desires. He being God. I wrote, ironically, this Jewish child whom Pharaoh sought to kill will lead the Israelites through an exodus, an event that will cost Pharaoh's firstborn child. And through the leadership of the child of Amram and Jochebed, the Israelites will be brought to the promised land where ultimately another Jewish child will be born who will bring salvation, eternal life, to the children of the world, including the children of Egypt. Isaiah 19, listen to this text. The Lord would make himself known to the Egyptians. God did not forsake the Egyptians. And when you look at Acts chapter 2 at the birth of the church, there's a laundry list of ethnicities present at the birth of the church. Among those are Egyptians. God's provision. Perhaps this morning you can relate to Moses' parents during those nine months of pregnancy. A kaleidoscope of emotions. Maybe it's concerns pertaining to the world we live in. How are you going to raise your kids? How are you going to raise your grandkids? Perhaps it's the injustices you personally are experiencing or encountering. And similar to Moses' parents, I mean, the, the, the options are few. Time is fleeting. The resources is extremely limited. Remember, God's plan will not be thwarted.
Who would have thought this little couple from the tribe of Levi would be given birth to a son who will lead the Israelites out of the land of Egypt? Jerry Burgess writes, No plan of God's can be thwarted. When he acts, no one can reverse it. No one can hold back his hand or bring him to account for his actions. But God is not only sovereign, Jerry writes, He is perfect in love and infinite in wisdom. That's our God. And that leads to the second point. Even in the midst of desperation, we cannot lose sight that God seeks our best for his glory. I am sure when Jacobed put that baby in that basket and placed it in the reeds, she had second thoughts. Really? God, are, are you sure about this? <laughs> There's that old hymn, the lyrics state, Be not dismayed, whatever betide, God will take care of you. Beneath his wings of love abide, God will take care of you. After all, the only God worth knowing is a God who has the power to work in human history to accomplish his end, his plan, right? When all seems lost, the Lord was working to protect Moses. And when Stephen gives that defense in Acts chapter 5 through 7 and rehearses Israel's history, when he gets to Moses, he said, it didn't look good, but God was in it and God protected Romans 8, we know that all things God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. No, cancer is not a good thing. Losing a job is not a good thing. (laughs) Living in a world that's becoming more and more hostile to Christianity may not seem like a good thing. But in Romans 8, it goes on to say, because the good is that he's forming us into the image of his son. And Jacobed and Amram, I'm sure years later, you remember how God provided? (laughs) Wasn't that a great story? Look at his book. Oh, isn't that wonderful? Here's his lock of hair. Here's how God provided. He sustained. He cared. And then third, trusting in the Lord calls for an act of faith. Idleness, worry, and apathy are cancerous cells within the soul. And given time... The host is going to be overtaken by cancer. Jacobet and her husband did not have a crystal ball. They had no guarantee of what the future held, but they acted in faith. Hebrews 11 in the Hall of Faith mentions, states, By faith Moses was born, his parents hid him for three months because they saw that God's hand was on the child and they were not afraid of the king's edict. Isn't that great? They didn't fear. Because we know who's on the throne. We know that God is sovereign. And Miriam, think about Miriam. She risked reprisal for approaching the, the princess. I mean, the princess could have said, Who are you? Arrest her. What, what are you looking at? We're bathing here. This is a private affair. This is only for Egyptians. Get out of here, you, you Israelite, you Hebrew. And yet, her faithfulness, Miriam's faithfulness, allowed her to join in song after crossing the Red Sea. She leads the praise team. And she says, sing to the Lord, for he has triumphed gloriously. And that's what she gets to experience, because she was willing to be obedient. 
Whatever you are facing, cling to a faith that is active and real. There's a quote at the bottom by Packer, which is so apropos. The character of God is today and always be exactly what it was in the Bible times. You know, I hear people say, oh, I wish I was there when Moses was delivered out of the water. Yeah, it would be great. But we see God delivering people day in and day out, don't we? Rescuing people from sin. God is forever, Packer writes, what at that moment, 3,000 years ago, he told Moses that he was. I am who I am, God states. His plan will not be thwarted. In the darkest of times, cling to that which you know. And then third, trust with an act of faith. As we move through the life of Moses, I want you to see this. If you take this tapestry, which is the life of Moses, and you turn it over, there's a major thread, and that is God keeps his promises. God is sovereign. He will succeed. And you look at our tapestry today, and you go, man. <laughs> you see it through the lens of various media outlets, etc. What's being taught in our public schools, etc. And you go, what do I do with all this? Just turn it over and be reminded our God is sovereign. His plan will not be thwarted. Do you know in Deuteronomy 18, God told Moses, you know, love you Moses, you're great, but there's going to be one greater than you that's going to rise. And that one greater, Deuteronomy 18, I would argue is Jesus. And in Matthew's gospel, he's painted, Jesus is, as the new Moses. He's the one who delivers. He's the one who delivers us and it also shows us God keeps his plan. This morning, we're going to observe communion and you should have received a, a cup. There's the, the wafer on the bottom, the drink on the top. Be careful you're not baptized in the process. Um, but I, I want us to spend some time, perhaps this week it's been one of great consternation, worry. Perhaps it's some things you're going through, a wayward child. And you say, I, I just don't understand. I'm really struggling. The life of Moses should be a reminder. God is on the throne. He keeps his promises. And when you look at communion, it's that. God keeping his promises. He said to, to Moses, I will rise one up greater than you who will lead my people who will deliver them from sin. So let's spend some time in prayer as we, before we go and remember what Christ has done for us here with these elements. but it's spilled over into perhaps short tempers. <laughs> perhaps it's lashing out at those around us or a critical heart. Scripture is clear to come to this 
table, this moment of communion, it calls for clean hearts. And so, Father, we come to you and we ask for forgiveness where we have fallen short this past week. Oh, the tongue gets us in trouble so often. Or it's a heart that so seeks to wander. Or the eyes or the feet that are so quick to move to sin. Father, forgive us. Thank you that in your sovereignty you saw fit to bring us a new Moses. One far greater, according to the book of Hebrews, because it was the perfect one, your son, God incarnate, who took on flesh and dwelt among us and paid the price for our sin, something Moses of old could have never accomplished. In fact, what Moses showed is that we needed a savior and we are so grateful for Jesus in whose name we pray. Communion, Paul observes in 1 Corinthians chapter 11. I find it interesting of, of all the letters he writes, he highlights it to this church who is, who is living in troubled times. And unfortunately, a church has taken often its culture, it can, and this one certainly has. And nestled in the text, he says, Listen, when you come to the Lord's Supper, this is a serious ordeal. The church only has two ordinances, baptism and this, communion. And it's a sign of remembrance. And so this morning, if you've never trusted Jesus as your Savior, uh, then you need to do that first. Because this is to remember what Christ has done for us. But in so doing, Paul records these words. He said, For I received from the Lord what I now passed on to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night in which he was betrayed, took bread. And after he had given thanks, he broke it. And he said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. The same way he took the cup. And he said, oh, this is my father's will. This was his plan. Nothing will thwart it. He said, you know, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this every time you drink it in remembrance of me. Father, thank you. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And indeed, we see that in the life of Moses back in Egypt. And we see it all the more glorious in the life of the new Moses, Jesus, who came to die on a cross for our sin, to pay a price that none of us could have paid. Our sin was too great. He took on the sin, separated from the Father. But Lord, He didn't just end there. He rose from the dead and is victorious. And he intercedes on our behalf in your presence at this very moment. And we thank you and we praise you for the deliverance we have as people who claim Jesus as our Savior. We thank you and 